last Sunday, we started a new series rooted in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, which is probably his most well-known and meatiest uh, sermon ever in all of Scripture. And whether or not you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount in one sitting, let alone studied it, I bet you have at least heard parts of it before. So, for example, if you are familiar with the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you, well, that's from the Sermon on the Mount. Congratulations, you've heard part of it before. Or if you've ever heard the expression, love your enemies, or turn the other cheek, or do not judge, congratulations, you've heard part of the Sermon on the Mount. That's where that comes from, from Jesus. But for all of the richness of the Sermon on the Mount's ethical standards and the way that it dignifies human beings, the Sermon on the Mount has historically been a stumbling block for people who hear it. And it's not so much that the teaching itself or the words of Jesus are the big stumbling block. I think the big stumbling block has typically been the way the Sermon on the Mount has been presented to people. Far too often, we've seen the Sermon on the Mount as a list of things that we're supposed to try and do in our own strength, kind of as a way of pleasing God or getting his favor somehow. And the problem with reading this teaching as if it were a set of rules that Jesus calls us to live up to is that it completely misses the point that above all, the Sermon on the Mount is intended to be good news for people. It's intended to be good news for people, not like, oh, this list is horrible. So last week, I mentioned that the Sermon on the Mount has a setting, that it's not just this standalone teaching that you can remove and rip out of the Gospel of Matthew. It has a context, and that context is Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4, because Sermon on the Mount comes in chapter 5. And in chapter 4, Jesus has been declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the reign of God has come near, that God's promise of salvation and his personal visitation to the earth, all that stuff that was promised in the prophets, it's beginning to come true when Jesus becomes incarnate, when he walks on the earth. So when he comes into Galilee, he's declaring the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Like he's saying, it's starting right now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's presenting good news. And he's talking to a crowd of people who have been sick, and isolated, and marginalized, and ostracized. He's talking to people in this crowd who are the downwardly mobile, for whom the structures of society just haven't been working. And it's to those people that he begins to preach the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we saw how he begins with the phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed. You are flourishing when you acknowledge your poverty of acclaim on the kingdom of heaven in and of your own strength, in and of your own power, in and of your own wealth, in and of your own personal piety. None of that is the standard. The standard is, Lord, I desperately need you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who have absolute dependence on Jesus. Now, why have I taken so much time of my 22-minute cap to, uh, to recap this? Because, because we're 21st century Americans. And 21st century Americans, at least me, I, I, we've been trained to turn almost every grace into an achievement. 
or competition. We've been conditioned to think that we need to earn everything in life, which leads to either arrogance or it leads to self-hatred, and it usually leads to both, doesn't it? You can just nod. I'm not looking at you. So today we're focusing on the second phrase of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, one of the so-called Beatitudes, and it is this, blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Now taken by itself, like just think about what I just said, blessed are those who mourn. That sounds like a paradox. It sounds like oil and water. It sounds like those two things, blessing and mourning, should not mix. I mean, what do you mean, Jesus? What are you talking about that blessed are those who mourn? What a callous thing to say. I mean, when we're in deep grief and suffering loss or harm, when we are literally mourning, it's almost a slap in the face to say, congratulations, you're blessed because you're sad, because you're mourning, because you're suffering. Oh, and it gets worse. You'll notice as the series goes on week to week that I'm going to be translating that word blessed, it's a Greek word makarios, uh, as flourishing. And I'll get into that more next week, just trust me, it works better. The Greek word makarios is better translated as flourishing. So let me just ante up that paradox a little bit. Sorry, Abby, I don't mean to be moving off my cue. Oh, the hybrid stuff is weird. So flourishing are those who mourn. (laughs) That sounds crazy. Okay, remember the context. Remember the context. This is supposed to be good news. How do we know? Matthew 1, 2, 3, and 4. So, rather than assuming the worst that Jesus is trying to smack us when we're down, rather than assuming that this statement is an insult, assume that there must be good news in it. Specifically, I want to propose three ways that this paradoxical statement is good news. First, at the very base level, consider the context again. Consider that the people Jesus addressing are the poor in spirit. They are those that chapter 4 tells us have brought loved ones to Jesus with diseases, with despair. Some have physical illnesses. Some have deformities. Some have uh, mental illness. Some have just deep despair that they're going through. Friends and relatives are bringing those people to Jesus at the end of chapter 4. That's the setting of this beatitude. To add insult to injury, the popular thought of that day, of the early mid-first century, was that if a person was suffering and mourning the ailments like that, then they must have done something to deserve it. They must have done something to draw down a curse from God on them. And I want to be very clear as I say that, that that is not something that the Bible teaches, by the way. Like, read the book of Job. And and tell me what you think. Like, the book of Job is there to tell you that God just doesn't, like, give you blessings for doing certain things or give you curses for doing other things. If anything, the book of Job just is like, I don't know what God is up to sometimes. But I'll tell you what it does say. It, It says that just because you're mourning or going through a hard time doesn't mean that God is zapping you. Okay? And just because you're, like, living high in the hog doesn't mean that God is necessarily super pleased with you either. So let's not read into that bad theology. But you know what this crowd didn't need at this moment in time when they're suffering and going through hardship? They didn't need a good theological lesson. Actually, you guys are wrong, and God isn't mad at you. They didn't need that, and I don't think 
we do either. Like when we're going through a hard time, does it help to have someone just tell you, actually, your theology is off, and here's how you rightly think about this. No, what you need to say, what you need to hear from, from people that love you, and what you're going to hear from God is you're blessed. Because you've come to me when you're poor in spirit. And you know you have no claim on me. And I'm saying you're part of my family. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Are you beginning to see the good news in the passage? Jesus, God in the flesh, declares that this group of people who are mourning in front of him are somehow flourishing, that they're blessed. They're flourishing because they're poor in spirit. And those who mourn are flourishing in God's eyes because the God of the universe is standing in front of them and he's receiving them. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And no matter what you're bringing in with you today too, yours is the kingdom of heaven when you cling to Jesus. Think of what that would mean for this group of people. Wait a minute. Jesus is receiving us? I mean, I knew he was receiving my family member who brought me here, but I've got a demon in me, or I've got epilepsy, or I've got a shriveled up limb, or I, I thought God was mad at me because all this stuff is happening to me. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What good news this is. And this good news could be good news for you too. I'll just be honest, like for a while now, my heart has been heavy and more recently than not, I think I've been starting to get more in touch with my heaviness. And and, and my heart is heavy for you too. Um, This has been an incredibly difficult year. A year of isolation and frustration and loss I mean, how many losses? It's been a a loss, a year of compounding losses. Like, I just think of students and teachers just as a subsection. Uh, Loss of being face-to-face for more than half a year. Loss of graduations last year. Loss of sports for like a whole slew of kids. That's a big thing when you're, you know, just loss of work, of all these kind of things. It's been a loss of community. Um, Some uh, have had children. I'm looking at, (laughs) thinking of Adeline. I'm thinking, you know, it's like, She's walking now, and I've hardly even got to see that. LL was talking to me about uh, some of the older cohort kids that I think Jonathan's literally grown six inches in like a year, and some of you are just noticing that for the first time. Losses. Some have been made to suffer this year without much community. And um, there's been the quiet loss, you know, of, of miscarriages when normally there'd be more people around, and it's just... Some people are just sitting on that and stewing on it over the year. There's, there's the loss of, of troubled marriages. And where do you go to like work that out? You know, your Zoom counseling session just isn't the same as, as, a, as a one-to-one friendship. There's broken dating relationships. There's just all of these little death by a thousand cuts, right? Um, and some of you have lost loved ones. You've been robbed of an opportunity to celebrate those lives well. I mean, maybe you've had a micro memorial service or something like that, but it hasn't been the robust thing where we, we, we get together and sing and, and, and remember and tell stories with big groups of people. We, we, we see singers and musicians up, you know, who we won't be seeing up here is Lori, Lori Turley. Uh, we lost her in March. And a very small group was privileged to be able to, to have a memorial her, for her because of COVID. But the rest of us, you know, we just, we just won't see her anymore. And that, that's a loss. And how do we carry that? Um, 
and, and express it. We've lost over a year of gathering for worship in person. We've lost part of our worshiping community. There are, I'm sure you're aware, some, some families and individuals in our church who, who just won't be coming back for a whole number of reasons, some theological, some uh, just drift, faith drift, all sorts of reasons, and it's sad. It's sad. It's sad, and that's okay to, to be sad. The season is been painful this season is painful and it's not something that's just going to be solved with a good good cry just one good cry it's not something that's going to be solved with one good conversation with a one visit to a counselor you know it, it, this is the kind of stuff that well you know grief lingers and, and it's time release and just when you think you're past it it raises its ugly head and that's just what grief does and so I want this to be part of the process of healing, not the, the fallacy that this would be the end-all, be-all. But we've got to deal with it. And, and, and you know, just because we mourn, we're not lost. In fact, we're invited to mourn by Jesus, who himself mourns in Scripture on several occasions. So I encourage you, if you have your scrap piece of paper handy, whether you're here or at home, you can pull that out. I've got mine in my pocket, and I'm going to give us a minute to, on one side of this piece of paper, jot down some of your personal laments, losses. It could be, you know, an, an experience or something or someone that you lost, or, or just maybe you're sad about the loss of a person or family, whatever it is, um, jot some of those down. Flourishing are those who mourn because they will be comforted. <laughs> and I guess if you're on the podcast listening to this later, you can pause as long as you like and take your time through all this, but I feel like moving us along a little bit. The statement of Jesus is good news because our pain and our mourning does not disqualify us from the love of Jesus. If anything, it's an opportunity that opens us up to Jesus. But there's another reason that mourning can be good news, and it starts with the gracious stance of God, the gracious work of God in our hearts um, as we get to know him better. So imagine Jesus is with these crowds, and they're the ones who think that they have no claim on God. They're the ones who think that they're probably disheveled and, and sick and ill and outcast because God must be mad at them. And all of a sudden, Jesus, who represents God, who's God in the flesh, is saying, wait a minute, you've got that wrong. You're part of my family. Whoa, no way, really? Okay, I want us to hear that too. We're part of God's family. And so what does that make me want to do to a person who makes me feel that way? When, when I'm around a person who makes me feel included and good, especially someone of such high standing, I just want to be around that person, which by the way, you're doing right now. That's why you're at church. That's why you're on Zoom on a hot sunny day. And, and when we're around this Jesus, when we're sitting under his word, like when we hear her Christine read the scripture, or when you're hearing me expound on a scripture, when we're singing the word, which is what we do in, in good songs, when we're praying, when we're meeting Jesus in the sacrament, we're getting closer to him and closer to him and closer to him. And as we encounter him in personal Bible study and in small groups and in, in just the ways that we interact with Jesus, he begins to change his heart. 
I know you probably don't pay attention to things like this. I agonize over them, but this sermon series has a title. It's not just the Sermon on the Mount. It's He Can Do This in Us. He can do this in us. And that's supposed to get the point across that the Sermon on the Mount is all about what Jesus does to and through us when we submit to him and when we follow him. And so these Beatitudes are, he's not going around the world looking for people who are humble and poor in spirit. He's, he's saying, when you start to follow me, I'll make you that way. I, I will change you from the inside out. And here's what happens when we begin to identify with the heart of Jesus. We begin to then see the world through his eyes, and that brings a whole new level of mourning. Why? Because we begin to see how broken the world is. We begin to see what Jesus wants for human flourishing, and we say, oh my goodness, we are so far from, from that in our world, right? Um, Jesus is the God of life. He's the God of flourishing. He desires shalom, which is this holistic peace for all creation. And so when we encounter things like corrupt political leadership, when we have starving people uh, in under-resourced community, and yet we spend trillions of dollars uh, making sure that other countries can't blow us up, but we can blow them up, you know, it breaks the heart of Jesus. And that kind of thing can should cause us to mourn as we become more and more like Jesus. And don't hear, I'm not just talking about the United States. I mean, we as, a hum, as human beings, just look at any point in history, we tend to escalate violence because we're afraid of other groups and other tribes and whatever it is. And it only costs valuable resources and it communicates a reality that implies that true peace is impossible, that true peace is just naive, that what we really need to do is secure our piece of the pie and make sure others don't. This weekend, it was declared that Juneteenth is a national holiday. And Juneteenth recognizes the day that slaves were finally set free in Texas, right? And it's a joyous day, but it's also a, whew, it's a sobering reminder to even have to need Juneteenth meant that those slaves that were supposed to be free under the Emancipation Proclamation were not indeed free in Texas for almost two and a half more years. That it was like, Texas is like, no, no, we're not going to follow that. Uh, we're going to keep our slaves for a little longer. And so finally, people who are free by legal, by federal law, are finally actually free. How do you think the God who rescued the slaves out of Egypt feels about injustice like that? How do you think that God feels about systemic continued racism against people who are made in his image, whoever they are. It should make us mourn too. So to mourn over the injustice of the world, to mourn over our present reality because it doesn't line up with God's kingdom, well, it's good news because it means that we're becoming more and more in line with the heart of God. That's a good thing. So I want to give us a moment to write on that other side of the piece of paper uh, to jot down some of the ways you're grieving over the state of the world right now, grieving over uh, the ways also that you might be complicit in, in that, that problem. I, I know I've got a lot of growing to do in so many areas of social uh, justice and righteousness. And so 
let's, let's take a moment to jot some of those things down. Flourishing are those who mourn because they will be comforted. This beatitude is good news because Jesus says that our grief and our suffering doesn't disqualify us from being blessed from our flourishing in his eyes. And it is good news because as we depend on Jesus and we trust him more and more, he changes our hearts so that the things that matter to God matter to us. But ultimately, ultimately mourning is good news not because we mourn, but because those who mourn in Christ will be comforted, will be comforted. Now, the grammar of this Greek sentence is what they call a divine passive. All that means is a fancy way of saying, you're not the actor in that phrase. God is the actor. That means it's a promise. Those who mourn will be comforted by God, the divine part of that passive. How exactly are we to expect comfort? Because I don't exactly always experience comfort when I'm mourning. And I think I'm following Jesus, not perfectly, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of here every week and I'm praying and I'm, you know what I mean? I'm doing the best I can. I don't know any other way to do it in, in the mind and body and emotions that I've been given. What does that mean to be comforted, right? Um, it's not just because I'm a preacher, but I've got, I've got three things <laughs> because I see them in here. Uh, so uh, three ways. First, it's a future. It's a future comfort. If you look up the word comfort in the Old Testament, which was Jesus's scriptures, right? The New Testament hadn't been written yet. He's saying the New Testament live. Um, you're going to see a bunch of reference in the Old Testament to the prophets using words like comfort. And what that has to deal with is someday for the prophets, the kingdom of God will come and break into our world and God will bring comfort. That in the day of the Lord, there will be comfort. That the world is going to be set right. That evildoers, like, like people who perpetuate injustice, they're going to be judged. And those who are mourning will be lifted up. And Jesus will say, I saw you. I saw you. You're with me. I've got something really good for you, okay? So it's this future. It's called eschatological. It's this thing that is going to happen at the end of the age. And shalom will be the norm where people, as Scott McKnight says, shalom is when people have what they need and they need what they have and when their neighbors have what they need and need what they have, okay? So it's this holistic. It's not just you got yours and I got mine, but we've got ours and it matters together. That, that, that's going to be the norm. And that's this future when, when, when Jesus returns and bring the, brings the kingdom in full, okay? Our hearts are going to be set right so that I can actually love without strings attached, without fear. I'm looking forward to that day, okay? Those who trust in Jesus will be holy, holistically comforted in the future. So that's, that's one piece to this. Second, Jesus comforts us in the now by forgiving us. Like when we come to know our contribution to the, to the suffering of other people because of my selfishness or, and, and sinfulness, it, it, it hurts. 
it kind of wrecks us. And who here does not live with some sort of regret over a decision, um, something you did or said, or something you neglected to do or say when the timing was there for you? Who here doesn't, to some degree, live with some guilt and regret? And in our worst days, shame about that. I know I'm still walking in a lot of shame for a lot of things. Something I've got to work with my counselor on. I'm being honest with you. Like, it's just the guilt turns into more than that. And it can become consuming, right? And, and so Jesus comforts those of us who are poor in spirit, those who turn to him in their desperation, and he forgives us of our sin and our shame. He washes us clean. And so that's one of the ways that flourishing are those who mourn because they'll be comforted by the forgiveness, by the washing clean of sin. And third, or yeah, third and finally, Jesus comforts us now through surprising beauty and what's called the prevenient grace. That's just all the good stuff that happens in the world that we might, we might say is, a, is natural. Like, how cool that we get to see the, the mountain and the ocean, you know, just turn, which way do you want to look? And it's like so beautiful. And we might just think, well, that's just there, but that's, the, biblically speaking, that's provenient grace. It's like this, the ability not only to have beauty in our backyard, but the senses to enjoy it. And, and you know, no matter like what you've done or who you are, you can enjoy that. And it's free and it's right there. And that's, that, so it's good food. It's, it's good wine. It's, it's good community. It's, it's if you have a good friend or if you're fortunate enough to be in a good relationship, it, it, it's all of that is provenient grace, and, and it brings comfort to us in the now. Uh, when we're going through hard times, when we're mourning, oftentimes God provides for us comfort in all of these good things that, that are right there. We have endured so much over the last year, let alone, as I look around, over lifetimes, right? This isn't the only hard year in our lives. And most of us are still coming to terms with, with the grief that is, will likely haunt us for a long time. If I'm just being honest, like I haven't even allowed myself to really process a lot of the things that have happened over the last year, partly because I'm just a driven person and I feel like if I slow down, I'll just get derailed and there's just so much to do. And do you resonate with that? Like there's just a lot of stuff that we just haven't even thought of yet. But to all of us who mourn, I offer us the words of Jesus flourishing are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Living God, we thank you uh, for, this, for this promise, for this good news that um, could be read as a slap in the face and an oxymoronic paradox, but Lord, uh, I'm thankful for the, for the context that you set this in. Uh, and I'm thankful for those promises of a future new kingdom and of uh, forgiveness in the now and of all the provenient grace of all the community and loved ones and, and beauty around us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and humility to receive all these things. Amen.